Welcome back to SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer alongside John Adams. The podcast today will be uh, offering a look at uh, the latest in Arch Manning's recruitment. Also uh, taking a, a look at the uh, the quarterback crop here in, in the SEC and, and just how long has it been since the quarterbacks in the SEC were this deep. But first, sort of the news of the week, the NCAA says, uh-uh, no more. No more of these pay-for-play deals. No more NIL deals that uh, influence recruiting decisions, inc- influence transfer decisions, boosters and collectives. You got to get out of the recruiting space. That's what the NCAA said. So, John, should uh, should these athletes and, and boosters that have been doing these NIL deals and on the recruiting trail, should they be worried? Is the NCAA coming around the corner for them? Just in the nick of time, huh? Yeah. Did you I get mean, your NIL deal in before this crackdown? Were you able to secure anything for yourself? Yes, I was, in fact, with Gannett Corporation. Uh, I don't want to disclose any details, of course. It's a non-disclosure agreement. And um, the NCA, what did it think was going to happen with this? For example, if you're going to a school and, in a, and choosing a school, how can an NIL opportunity not be a part of that decision? It's just common sense. And I, I think it's, again, it's all about control. They've lost control. And so now they're going to strike back. It's too late for that. And if this thing ends up in the court, which way do you think it'll go? Well, the NCAA's yeah. not winning much in the courts anymore. That's exactly right. They've they've gotten skunked in the courts up to this point, and that's sort of why this train got out of the station, I think, in, in the first place. And the NCAA finally said, uh, well, we're not going to stop NIL deals, uh, not to mention the state legislature's got involved. But now, okay, so here is the rule last summer that the NCAA announced in, in terms of NIL and involving agreements with boosters. Here, here's what the NCAA said a year ago. It's a, it's a question and answer here. Frequently asked questions. The question was, can individuals enter into NIL agreements with boosters? And the NCAA says, yes, provided that the activity is in accordance with state laws and school policy and is not impermissible inducement and it does not constitute pay for play. And so that's basically what the NCAA said this week, again, is that you can't have pay for play. You can't have deals that are recruiting inducements. So they haven't done anything new. All they've done is reminded everybody of the existing rules. But if you're not going to enforce the rules, who's going to follow them? You know, this was the much-awaited guidance that we'd been hearing for weeks that the NCAA is going to have some sort of crackdown, some sort of new guidelines when it comes to NIL deals, it's like, these are new guidelines. These are just the old guidelines that you've been failing to enforce for 10 months. Did the uh, lame duck NCAA director, Mark Emmert, sign off on this? Is this his last great work? He might already be soaring from a golden parachute somewhere. I think I saw him up in the, up in the clouds. When I was listening to you read that, from, I was reminded that you practically have a law degree. So that gives more credibility to what you were saying. Yes, I, I do have a minor in, in criminal justice, which has come in handy throughout podcasts in the past. And so as I put on my minor in criminal justice here, 
I look to this and wonder, how is any of this going to hold up in, in court? You know, is this NCA stepping in and say, hey, you can't have any pay for play. Uh, you can get deals once you're on campus. Some company wants, you know, wants you to, to sponsor their sweatshirt or something. Um, you know, wants you to come out and sign a few autographs at the local sporting goods store. That's all good. But anything as, as recruiting inducements, nope, can't have that. Um, I don't think these these NIL collectives are going to stand by quietly. They've already uh, got themselves organized. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of power behind this. You know, I don't know that they're just going to sit by and, and say, okay, well, I guess we're done here now. Um, this is probably headed to a courtroom, probably headed for some sort of antitrust lawsuit. The, the problem, John, with my criminal justice minor is I don't think we got to the point uh, of antitrust lawsuits and, and how mm. those might go. So I think my expertise is, is fairly limited in, in this particular case, but has been helpful in the past. Well, just do what lawyers do. Just wing it when when you don't have a clue about it. Okay. Well, winging it, I think the NCA probably will get skunked in the courtroom once again if it if it comes to that. You know, the other thing I wonder, John, you know, beyond just speculating what might happen in an antitrust lawsuit, if it gets to this point, is how are you going to prove it anyway? You know, let's say the NCA enforcement, someone comes to NCA enforcement and says, you know what? We think old Johnny Jumpshot over there might have got an NIL deal to influence his commitment to state you. How are you going to prove that? You know, is the NCA going to go up to Johnny Jumpshot and the booster and say, did you guys have an NIL deal? Uh, and, and is that why you committed to state you? If I'm Johnny Jumpshot, I say, first of all, uh, any questions, I'll be referring to my lawyer. Second of all, if you're Johnny Jumpshot and state you, you probably have a non-disclosure agreement about this NIL deal in the first place. And third, the NCA enforcement, they're not a they're not a court of law. They don't have any subpoena power. So how are they going to force you to to play ball? I I love this. Here's here's one of the ways the NCA plans to police this is that uh, this is from the NCA. It says schools are reminded of their obligation to report any potential <laughs> violations through their traditional self reporting process. So the NCAA's grand plan is for schools to start tattling on themselves that uh, they are cheating on the recruiting trail. And yes, uh, I, I don't know that there's a long line of schools uh, that will be uh, eager to tattle on on any recruiting violations that they see occurring. Yes. Any, any school right now that's serious about winning, its coaches are already meeting with people, representatives of a collective. They're telling them what players they want, what players are the best, so on and so forth. And let's just say that this is possible, that the NCAA can strike back and it wouldn't go to court. You've already got a collective organized. Okay. You've got already got a means of buying players. So you just do what you've done in the past when you were buying players, but it wasn't legal. The NCAA couldn't enforce that. It took a while for even Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee to get exposed as, uh, as his staff, at least, as breaking rules. So, no, it, it's just not it's not going to work. The NCAA doesn't have that kind of – it doesn't have the power. It doesn't have the investigative power. This is here to stay, and there's not much the NCAA can do about it now. 
Yeah, I had someone say to me recently that they thought college sports were now more corrupt than ever, and I said I disagreed with that. I said, you know, these are the type of deals that were always occurring in the shadows and, and under the table, and, and now with NIL, these deals have come above board. Boosters are, you know, are coming out of the, the shadows and, and being more directly involved, but it's I never saw it as, as more corrupt now. I just saw it, it's it's into the light, and people didn't like that the fairy tale of amateurism was over. And so now it's like, oh, let's let's take these deals and put them back under the table again. You know, it's like we don't care if the town drunk is sitting on the square drinking liquor, but put that liquor bottle in a brown paper bag. So maybe that's not what he's doing. And we can all tell ourselves... You know, old Jim Bob over there, he's just enjoying an ice cold Coke and he's got it in a brown paper bag. There's nothing nefarious going on there. That to me is is what this is. It's like they know they're not going to be able to stop it. I don't see how they could stop it without subpoena power and, and without a, a firm grasp that the law would be on, on their side, even if they tried to stop it. So it's like, you know what, let's just just don't do it out on, in, in the open anymore. Don't don't let us know that you're having any recruiting inducements. Take those babies back under the table where they belong. Also, school administrators aren't real happy about this because things are getting out of their control. And look at it this way. What do IDs do best? They they fundraise. They want to put up a new building. They want to put up a, a, a glorious state-of-the-art media facility so the people covering their team can can work in luxury. I'm kidding, of course, but they do want to build buildings. That's what they like to do. That's something they can point to forever. Well, how'd you get this building? Well, I talked to Johnny Jumpshot's dad, William Jumpshot, into giving us $20 million for it. Well, William Jumpshot now, if he has a choice, what does he want to do? Does he want to contribute to a building? Does he want to buy his team a quarterback? It's not a close call. You can, it doesn't matter what your, your structure looks like, what your facilities look like. Yeah. You want them to be good, but when it comes down to facilities versus players, players went out. And so that went out. So that's where the money should be going now. I actually feel bad for NCAA enforcement here, because I think they now have an impossible task of if someone is, is accused of, of, you know, accepting a recruiting inducement, a pay for play deal as opposed to getting an NIL deal once you're in college and some company wants to strike a deal with you. You know, if there's an accusation of, hey, a booster, a collective, they're the reason why, you know, this player committed to, to the school. I feel bad for NCAA enforcement, actually, because, I mean, they're, they're, a usual, they're usually beat up by the public anyway. Nobody likes NCAA enforcement. It's like nobody likes cheating until your school gets accused of cheating. And then when you have to go in front of NCAA enforcement, you're mad at whatever decision comes down. And I think really NCAA enforcement here has at least one hand tied behind their back because, like I said, without subpoena power, I just don't see how they could prove hardly any of this is, is going on anyway because, you know, if you're the collectives, you're not going to be inclined to talk about it. Why would you want to discuss it? If you're the player... And you've got a deal. Why would you want to discuss it with anybody? You shouldn't if you're smart. And so I don't see how they're uh, they're going to prove much of this. The schools 
you know, the administrators and the coaches, they act like they don't want this cheating to go on, but I don't see them being real cooperative. If they get accused of cheating, they're going to say, Hey, we didn't, we don't know about any of this. This was happening outside our walls. If this happened, we don't know about it. So I just, I think NCAA enforcement has an impossible task of, you know, of trying to stop this now. It's like, I think if anything, there should have been a stronger effort at the beginning before these collectives got organized. You know, as soon as you caught a whiff of any recruiting inducement, if you're the NCAA, you should have stepped in and said, hey, we basically had one rule from the start. NIL deals are fine. Pay for play recruiting inducements are not fine. But they didn't step in from the start. The collectives got organized. We're 10, 11 months into this now. And I just, I don't see how you're going to put the train back in the station. Another thing about it is not being able to see how this would play out. I mean, come on. Again, what do you think? How is a an athlete's going to sign with a school and then all of a sudden, hey, we've got a million-dollar deal for you? I, I, I mean, the practicality of it. You have to know what kind of what kind of options you have. I mean, that's just if if this is a business and this is a business deal and athletes can now get paid, does it really make that much difference if he's paid one minute before he signs a national letter or one minute after? Again, the practicality of it, it's impossible to enforce. The only way they could enforce this is if some athlete gets all coked up or stoned and goes on Instagram and says, hey, I got $5 million to play for this school. Good yeah. for me. It's really going to be a lesson in in keeping your mouth shut, I think, will be the biggest thing that comes out of this. If you get a sweet deal as a recruiting inducement, just don't tell anybody about it. Sign that NDA and don't say a peep about it. You know that That's really what the big lesson is going to be here. Like you said, don't say something stupid on Instagram Live, and you're probably going to be in the clear. John, if you were to get an NIL deal, who would you want it to be with? Is there a company out there or a product that you think you'd be really good hawking? Um, you know, if they would just come to you, I bet, what, maybe five figures? Is that what it would take to get your endorsement? I mean, you're you're an established guy in your career at this point. You're not going to do a deal for 100 bucks, I don't think, right? Would $1,000 be enough? You need five figures or more. And, and who do you think you would like to do a deal with? Well, that's a tough one. There's so many. Uh, uh, I might do it with a restaurant. I eat out a lot. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, Litton's uh, in Knoxville, Chop House in Knoxville. I eat at First Watch some. Yeah, I could probably, I would probably sign on with those guys, but I think five figures would be cutting myself a little short. I would probably go with six figures. What if they did five figures and one free meal a day? Done deal. For the rest of your life. Yeah, it's, yeah, done and done. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. I might could do something with Honda, too, with that 20-year-old Honda Accord sitting out there in the high grass next to my driveway. uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, it's got a lot of mileage out that I can, I've done this on our podcast before. I've made a pretty good compelling uh, point uh, for the longevity and durability of Honda Accords. Yeah, and the price on that right now is uh, it's thirty four hundred now. It's gone up two hundred since we last spoke. To be honest, the grass isn't that high because I moved my car into the driveway and had Jerry when he cut my lawn. I think that's enhanced the value of the car. It just looks better in that shorter grass. It doesn't look like something has just been left there 
and the grass has grown up around it. It looks like, oh, he's just parked his car in the grass because he has so many vehicles at his home. Well, and not only that, but as inflation soars, the price of that Honda soars. Someone whose stock has been soaring for a long time, John, Arch Manning, his, his recruitment has been in center focus here, it seems like, for over a year. He's the top-rated prospect in this upcoming recruiting class quarterback who plays in New Orleans, but all of that really isn't why he's in the headlines as much as he is. He's he's a Manning. He's from the the first family of of SEC football. You know the the nephew of of Peyton Manning and Eli Manning, the grandson of Archie Manning, and the latest. If you're to believe the recruiting tea leaves or the recruiting experts. And I think generally those guys um, who cover recruiting do a pretty good job of, of predicting uh, where guys will be going, especially at this stage in the game. The latest from from On3, which is the, the new big recruiting website that's uh, catching fire here, they are projecting with a 60% chance, roughly, that Arch Manning winds up at Texas. Texas, according to, to On3, is the front runner. And Georgia and, and Alabama are uh, are also in there in the mix. Those are those are their top three right now as they see it. I wrote about this week, John. That you know, at first glance, you I think you could say like Texas. Why would Arch Manning go to Texas? I mean, it's we're we're fifteen plus years removed from the Vince Young days, and uh, Texas has five times as many losing seasons as they do 10 win seasons since 2010. This is not the the Texas of of old. You know, at, at first glance I think like Alabama or Georgia would would seem like a more natural choice. You're the number 1 prospect, you step into to a powerhouse program. But then I thought, you know what if Arch Manning really wants to to create this monster legacy of his own and step out of the the shadows of his of his grandfather and his uncles, I mean, what better way to do that than to bring Texas, quote unquote, back? You know, we always hear that Texas is back and they never are. Um, if Arch Manning could could go to Austin and and actually bring Texas back, I think that would um, that would cement his place in the Manning family more than maybe just being the next in a in a line of, of great Alabama quarterbacks would be. That's a really good point, Blake. When you look at how the other Mannings have handled it. Let's go back to, to Archie. Ole Miss was a, a national power in the late 50s and early 60s under Johnny Vaught. After that, though, Ole Miss kind of, it was in slight decline. It was it toward the later 60s. It wasn't a national power. And then along came Archie Manning. Archie Manning never led him all the way back, but he led him back to prominence. Won a lot of big games, beat a lot of good teams. And that cemented his legacy. It wasn't just that he was a great quarterback. He left his mark on the program, and he changed the image of Ole Miss. Yeah, maybe it couldn't win a national title. Maybe it couldn't win an SEC title. But you didn't want to play those guys because he could wreck your season. And so that's why he's, in part, because he's a, he's such a legendary figure there in Oxford. You look at Eli, Ole Miss, when he went to Ole Miss, Ole Miss was down. Eli got him a 10-win season almost won the SEC. Then look at Peyton in in Tennessee. Peyton came there. Tennessee was doing well, but he elevated it even more. 
and sort of segued into ushered in a, a national championship team. I don't know that t- if Tennessee would have won a national championship if Peyton hadn't been there. I thought he elevated Tennessee's recruiting. So all of these guys had an impact. And look at Peyton's legacy in Knoxville. At Tennessee, he's still a revered figure. So here's a chance to expand a legendary brand. And you got to admit, Texas is bigger than, it's way bigger than Tennessee or Mississippi or UT or Ole Miss. So yeah, this is a wonderful opportunity to enhance the brand. And and I think about, you know, Arch Manning could go to Alabama, have a, a really, really good career, but still, would he be remembered more fondly than Tua Tungavaloa or Bryce Young or Mac Jones? You know, they've just been pumping out good quarterbacks year after year. And maybe that's a reason to go there. You know, if you're looking at it through that lens of, you know, Alabama's now, it's it's been a factory for everything else for years. Now it's a quarterback factory. But, you know, if you want to you want to have a statue outside the stadium, if you want to be remembered the way Peyton Manning is remembered, and, and revered, really, just uh, throughout the state of Tennessee, Texas might be a, a greater opportunity for that. The other thing I think about, and I don't know that this factors in at all, John, but one thing I've thought about is, you know, Austin, Texas is not some little SEC town. Austin, Texas now has a population past a million people. And let's say, I mean, Austin, we'll call it eclectic. I guess it's an eclectic city, maybe is one way to put it. And in so much as you could ever have a little anonymity being a Manning on a college in a college town, I think maybe Austin would provide you a sliver of that. Frankly, it's a bit of a weird place. I feel like uh, Arch Manning might have just a sliver of hope of at times blending in there in Austin. You know, you got their one of their big festivals at South by Southwest concert. Uh, series that they do or uh, what have you, you might have a chance of just blending in just a smidge. You know, if you're a Manning on in Tuscaloosa, Alabama or in Athens, Georgia, I mean, you are going to be in the limelight uh, 24-7 all the time. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that factors in, but I would think, you know, for some people that maybe could, could be a little bit of a appeal is you're going to be in a city of a million people and uh, you know, every single move you make maybe won't be scrutinized quite as much as maybe it would if uh, if you're the quarterback at, in Tuscaloosa or Athens. If you really want anonymity, though, go to Hollywood. That's true. Go go play for Lincoln Riley at Southern California now. They, uh, I mean, everybody gets lost in that megatropolis. How much do you think? You know, Arch Manning has said he hit it off with Steve Sarkeesian back to, I mean, really dating back to when Sarkeesian was Alabama's offensive coordinator. And of course, now Sarkeesian's at Texas. How much do you think it factors in for a quarterback that you just never really know who Alabama's offensive coordinator is going to be? I mean, you know, it seems like Saban's just going to coach forever. But of course, he's the he's the defensive guru. And they keep churning through offensive coordinators who to Saban's hiring credit, he keeps running through good ones here. But, you know, Bill O'Brien is the OC now. He's heading into his second season. I kind of think it's probably no better than a coin flip that Bill O'Brien will be at Alabama when Arch Manning steps on campus in 2023. Whereas comparatively, 
even in this day and age of knee-jerk coach firings, you would think Sarkeesian's still going to be around in 2023 at Texas, entering what would be his third season there, unless things just go completely awful here in, in year two. Do you think that factors in at all, or do you think if you want to play at Alabama, who cares who the coordinator is? I think that factors in very much. You look at uh, Peyton at Tennessee, played for uh, – Philip Fulman was the head coach, of course, but David Cutcliffe, that was a real connection, and they were enamored with David Cutcliffe as an offense coordinator. So then David Cutcliffe goes to Ole Miss as a head coach. So Eli goes there and plays for David. They had a great relationship with, with Cutcliffe, who was an offensive coordinator when that relationship was first formed. So I think that is very important with them. They want to trust the guy that's working, whether he's the offensive coordinator or the head coach. I mean, if, they, if it's the offensive coordinator, they want a head coach that won't get in the way. But they want they would like to know that that he's there to uh, shepherd him through his career, his, which will probably be three years, and then he's off to the NFL. So that, uh, yeah, that, uh, that makes sense. I don't think... Uh, I wonder, though, I wonder as competitive as Nick Saban is, if he's thinking, why in the world did I help rehab Steve Sarkeesian? Why did I let open my doors to him and let him come in and be an offense coordinator? National championship aside, I could have got another OC and we'd have won a national title, Saban might be thinking. But now I'm competing with him for whom I would like is our next quarterback. So <laughs> I, w- I just think if Steve Sarkeesian hadn't got that spot with Nick Saban, he wouldn't be the head coach at Texas. He he failed at Southern Cal. He had some off the field issues. Uh, so no, he wouldn't be where he is now. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because if you're just looking for a track record of success, you'd, you'd go play for Saban or Kirby smart hands down. As you mentioned, Sarkeesian was fired from a head coaching job at Southern Cal for issues with alcohol. And he doesn't have that track record, you know, to the same degree, nowhere close of, of on-field success as these other programs have under their current coaches. But, you know, I don't know how guys really get labeled quarterback whisperers. I guess it's folks like you and I labeling someone quarterback whisperers. <laughs> and sometimes it turns out that they maybe weren't such a good whisperer all, all along, but you look at, at Steve Sarkeesian's track record, you know, when he was at USC, he was an assistant coach there coaching quarterbacks and then later an offensive coordinator. That was during the time that USC pumped through Carson Palmer, Matt Leiner, Mark Sanchez, three first round NFL draft picks while Steve Sarkeesian was working with the quarterbacks there. Then he goes to be a head coach at Washington. You have Jake Locker, <laughs> kind of forget about Jake Locker that even even played football, but he was a first-round draft pick, and then he gets at Alabama, and he works with, with Tua in his final season there, who becomes a round one draft pick, and then Mac Jones in his standout season in 2020. So he has worked directly as either a head coach or an assistant coach with six quarterbacks who became first-round NFL draft picks. So if you just look at that resume and you put aside some of the off-the-field stuff and you look past the win-loss record, he does have a pretty good track record when it comes to to quarterbacks, I think. And, you know, if you if if the proof is in is in your work, I think you'd have a hard time arguing that 
that he hasn't done a good job with with the quarterbacks he's he's got. Blake, you know that the Manning family, and they they all have input. I know it'll be Orange's decision. They'd let him make a decision, but you know they've done their homework on this. They are so well connected in college and NFL. They, I mean, you still have the Manning pass. You have the Manning passing academy, the quarterback camp. Every summer, the elite quarterbacks from all over the country go there uh, in high school, and then you have counselors from the best quarterbacks in in college go there as counselors. They're just so well connected. They know who. If you ask them, hey, give me the top five quarterback coaches in the country, whether they're offense coordinator, head coach, or just quarterbacks coach, I guarantee you the Manning family say, okay, it's one, two, three, four, five. Reel them off just like that. Speaking of quarterbacks, John, I want to get into the the crop of quarterbacks we have here in the SEC this year because as you look around the conference, I mean, I was I, I think we got on this – this topic the other day when you and I were, were talking on the phone, you look at um, you know just early draft projections for next year, and I know those early projections can't be trusted all that much, but there are several quarterbacks from the SEC projected to be first round picks next year, and even beyond, you know, projecting out toward the draft. You just look at at this crop, and I think other than maybe like Missouri, Vanderbilt, Auburn, I'm not sure that there's an an SEC team that should feel uncomfortable with their quarterback situation right now. I mean, yes, we know we have the reigning Heisman winner at the top there in, in Bryce Young back at Alabama, but you go down the list. I mean, Will Rogers at Mississippi State and uh, uh, K.J. Jefferson at Arkansas, Hendon Hooker back at Tennessee. Spencer Rattler comes into the league from Oklahoma, and he he elevates um, by far the what South Carolina can now expect from its quarterback. Will Levis, I know he's unpolished, but he's better than what what Kentucky usually has at quarterback. Point being, this isn't just a, a crop of quarterbacks that's that's strong at the top. I think this is a really deep uh, quarterback group in the SEC. And I was wondering in the 80 or so years you've been covering SEC football, can you ever recall a year where the the crop of talent at quarterback was as deep as it is going into the season. Instead of 80, let's just round that off to a hundred. It's a nice, even number. When you think about it, the sec was for a long time was known as a conference. It's forte was defensive lineman that gave it an edge over everybody. The, The sec just had more defensive linemen who were not just big, but could run. And they had good running backs. Go back to the 80s when you had Herschel Walker at Georgia, and then along comes Bo Jackson at uh, at Auburn. And then next thing you know, there's Emmett Smith at Florida. Just a, a long line of historically good running backs, uh, great defenses. But the SEC has evolved, and it always it, – it's quarterback game now. Uh, so the SEC ends up with the best quarterbacks. I guess I go back to – we're talking about the Manning family. I go back to the late 60s and early 70s. There were a lot of pro prospects around. You had Pat Sullivan at Auburn, won the Heisman Trophy. You had Archie Manning, as we've, one of the greatest college quarterbacks of all time. Didn't win the Heisman, but I'd take him over Jim Plunkett, I think. 
Jim Plunkett won Heisman during that area era. And uh, I remember John Reeves at Florida. He went into the NFL. Um, there were quite a few quarterbacks. Uh, Burt Jones coming out of LSU last year was 72. He played a long time in the NFL, although injury shortened his career. There were a lot of teams back then that were throwing the ball. Now, the passing attacks weren't as sophisticated as they are there now, but as we like to say today, arm talent was very, very prevalent. Even um, Scott Hunter at Alabama, people forget there was an interim period. Alabama wasn't really good during that period, but they were successful throwing the ball with Scott Hunter. Then they moved into the wishbone era with Terry Davis. There were quite a few good quarterbacks, and then, it really dropped off as we went through the 70s and 80s where the SEC didn't produce those kind of quarterbacks. But now we're back, so I guess it's the old cycle thing. You just did an incredible job there, John, because I've, I've got a cheat sheet here. As you were talking, I pulled up the sports reference stats for the 1970 passing leaders in the SEC, and, and you nailed it. I mean, there at the top of the list, you had Pat Sullivan, from uh, from Auburn, uh, yet John Reeves at, at Florida. Both those guys threw for over twenty five hundred yards, which in that era, that's especially that's that's a lot of yardage. You mentioned uh, Archie Manning there and Ole Miss, Scott Hunter, Alabama, Bobby Scott, Tennessee. I mean, you you were running down the line like it wasn't fifty two years ago. It's like it was yesterday, huh? <laughs> and I did. I didn't mean to slide Bobby Scott, who played. Ironically, he ended up as a backup to Archie with the New Orleans Saints. And and Dewey Warren from Tennessee was there in the in the late sixties. So there yeah, teams were just throwing the ball more then and it was kind of like a it was somewhat of a phase, I guess. It was interesting. I remember when Missouri came into the conference, they had a defensive tackle, Sheldon Richardson, that made a lot of headlines before that first season of Missouri in the SEC in 2012. Because at Media Days that year, Sheldon Richardson said that uh, that he'd, he'd seen a little SEC football during Missouri's time in the Big 12, and his impression was that it was like watching the Big 10. Sheldon Richardson said, quote, it's old man football. And this you know, this got a lot of attention because it was something interesting said at SEC Media Days, which is pretty uncommon. Um, and it was kind of like, oh, no, Sheldon didn't just come at the, the mighty SEC, did he? But actually, I think what he was saying had a lot of truth in it. Like, the Big 12 was out there at that time slinging it all over the yard. Um, you know, more spread offenses, more quarterback-friendly offenses, I think, at that time. And, and by comparison... I think the SEC was was old man football, or you could put it differently, like just a game of brutes. Um, you know, it was it was those those defense alignment were the the stars of the the show, like you said. And there's still that talent really at any position in the league. But I think just even in ten years of how much the conference has evolved at the quarterback position. Um, I mean, you just you just go back look at look at the 2017 passing leaders for the for the SEC. We're just talking five years ago. The number two guy on the list in terms of passing yards per game five years ago, 2017, Kyle Shermer at Vanderbilt. Can you imagine now, like, Kyle Shermer, I mean, Kyle Shermer had a nice career at Vanderbilt. He's a better quarterback than, than Vanderbilt's usually accustomed to, but 
you imagine Kyle Shermer ranking second in the SEC this season in passing yards per game? That was at 235 yards per game. That was good enough to be second in the SEC that year. Drew Locke was was the leader. He was the only guy that threw for 300 yards per game. Now, if you don't throw for at least 250 per game, you're going to be in the the bottom half of the conference this year, I think. With you know, you could up and down the list. There's going to be a lot of guys thrown for for 250 plus, I think. Yeah, the uh, other good examples of this were the LSU in 2019 with Joe Burrow and then Alabama in 2020, you know, just the same thing. I mean, they were just throwing the ball crazy, putting up tremendous numbers. Alabama has really always kind of been a good barometer of the way the league is going. Even when you go back to Bear Bryan, Bear Bryan started out offensively in the early 60s at Alabama. Pat Trammell was his quarterback, a defensive-oriented team, won a national championship that way. Then toward the late 60s, he started throwing the ball with Steve Sloan, Kenny Stabler. Uh, then in the early 70s, he went went to the wishbone with Terry Davis, at quarterback, won a lot there. And you see, and then that, then you go to Nick Saban. I mean, he started out winning championships at Alabama with Greg McElroy, who was labeled uh, maybe unfairly a little bit, but he was a, considered a caretaker, a game manager. Uh, and now he's got elite quarterbacks, first-round draft picks. So, yeah, those guys, if you're going to win in college football, you got to be able to change and adapt to the way the game is going, and Alabama's certainly done that. Yeah, and I think some of the coaching hires, too, have influenced the league in this direction. You look at a, a few years ago, Mississippi State hires Mike Leach, who, you know, he doesn't have much use for handoffs uh, in, in his system. And then you know, Lane Kiffin, uh, who has a good track record with quarterbacks, comes to Ole Miss, and Lane Kiffin is is running an offense somewhat similar to what Art Bryles ran at, at Baylor. And then you look at at uh, Arkansas, I think a lot of people, when Arkansas hires Sam Pittman, a former offensive line coach, they think, okay, it's going to be ground and pound, three yards and a cloud of dust. No, you know, Sam Pittman brings in Kendall Bryles as his offensive coordinator. And so Arkansas is also running something similar to that Art Bryles Baylor offense. And then you look at Tennessee. They fire Jeremy Pruitt, who was allergic to, to offense, and they bring in Josh Heupel, who... That's what he does. A tempo. I mean, you don't find a faster-paced offense in the, in the country than what Tennessee's doing uh, with with Josh Heupel and his spread. And and again, it has its its influence when you look back to to what Art Bryles and, and Baylor did. So I think some of the coaching hires as as well have influenced it in this direction. And when you have the systems in place, I mean, you know you're going to have talent around you at skill positions. When you're quarterback, and you know you're going to get to sling, sling it out there, uh, I think all of a sudden. It's like, why wouldn't I be playing in the SEC? Yeah, you go back and, and you think about the, the transition was really dramatic in Tennessee to go from a clueless offensive coach in Jeremy Pruitt to Josh Heupel, who's who's really adept at the offensive game. I think a, for a really tough essay question, uh, try Jeremy, explaining Jeremy Pruitt's offensive philosophy in a thousand words. That would be a challenge. The big thing, John, was he always wanted to end possessions in a kick. He said either an extra point, a field goal, or a punt. Just don't be turning the ball over. Make sure it ends in a kick. And and boy, they punted a lot. 
They wow. sure had some punters. <laughs> what about here? Another example to me is Kentucky. Mark Stoops, a defensive oriented coach, had success, built up the program, not at, uh, to become, you know, not cha- challenging for championships, but built it up. And then he wants to go, I got to do more than this. I can't just win with a good running game, good defense, uh, sound fundamental football. He's making the transition. And here you have Will Levis now. I bet Penn State wishes it had Will Levis back at quarterback. I, I just, I, I think Kentucky's a really good example of that because, I mean, I, I just during the Stoops era, even though Kentucky was doing better, I just didn't really think of it as having a great passing threat. Will Levis can can throw it pretty well. Yeah, that's a good point. Will Levis last year averaged over 200 yards per game passing. Uh, which may not sound like a lot, but when you look at Kentucky, that's the first time they had a quarterback average at least 200 yards passing per game in seven seasons. You got to go back to 2014 to the last time Kentucky had that for Will Levis. So I think that's that's a great example. All right, John, I hope uh, I hope those NIL deals come flowing in. And I tell you what, I'm not going to rat you out. If you get one, you keep it to yourself, and you keep it between you and 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 whichever booster company you get it lined up with and i won't be tattling to the ncaa i tell you what though blake what i just as a precaution i probably won't be doing any more podcasts because i I get in a podcast and i'm just kind of freewheeling and things come out of my mouth and i might slip up and say i got three hundred thousand dollars to endorse littons or the chop house work on my replacement okay will do all right we've enjoyed having you John, and we've enjoyed having you listening to this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered.